Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Good morning, buddy. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Podcast in the time of COVID. Yep. Two buddies who are, two brothers who are on either side of a 1,300 mile interstate. I hope your we, guest room is ready. It's I'm ready. I'm guessing up. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll put some York peppermint patties in there and <laughs> you can go to town. Okay. We're uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about healthcare. Some of the arguments that have been coming out. I think you reacted to a tweet that I retweeted, and uh, I think that's I think it's good to talk about it. Uh, uh, I, you know, I will say that I think your entire exposure to Twitter, the Twitter universe, is through my feed because I see you commenting on all the stuff <laughs> I retweet. I always see a comment from Cole Bennett somewhere. Listen, I want our listeners to know that I keep an eagle eye peeled for what Scott Self retweets and likes on Twitter because I can't let him get away with anything lest that someone might think I agree. You know what I mean? I have to I have to not only watch my own tweet activity, but I have to watch Scott lest he having having run the race. Wait, having okay. Um yeah, I've got to watch him carefully. So We've, we have talked about healthcare to some degree in the past on this podcast. Mm-hmm. It has come up and gone away. Today, I, we, we decided that in the middle of this COVID pandemic and the various types of responses from world governments and world leaders, and given the tweet that Scott commented on or retweeted, that it would be a great time to talk about um, Christian citizens in the public square talking about health care. It's a very contentious topic. It I is. don't see people having easy conversations about it. Even people I admire who are on the same team often um, have a hard time finding common ground. And so we're going to try to be bros before politicos as we talk about it, which is tenant number three. Scott, what are the other two? Yeah, and we'll also uh, light up some sacred cows, <laughs> and we'll fly some. When we'll fly some. Yeah, we'll fly some f- flags. So, good. Um, yeah, and I, and I think you're right too, Cole. That healthcare is weird as a topic because it becomes kind of an intersection between ec- economics, about morality, about ethics, about religion. Um, it becomes kind of this container in which all of the different uh, concerns that we that we have are kind of manifest in one in one place. Mm-hmm. And you know, I know this is true. I uh, in part because last night we we learned that a, a dear friend of mine is uh, on hospice. She she'd been fighting cancer and she's decided to go on to hospice. And uh, mm. you know, I I couldn't get through the night. Uh, I was. You know, grieving for her, grieving for her family, uh, thinking about that kind of decision and what kind of decision that that is, and how to make it, and all the different um, facets of our lives that are in that container called healthcare. So it mm-hmm. is complex and it is difficult, and it's hard to have just an economics conversation about healthcare. You know, when when your mother is sick, it's hard to just have a moral conversation or an ethical conversation about healthcare when it has such significant economic consequences. 
And then, you know, we get these simplistic uh, characterizations of what's going on in other countries, whether we're praising them or uh, denigrating them. In either case, we are oftentimes very oversimplistic. We say everything's great in Sweden. Too bad we're not more like them. Or everything's terrible in you know Great Britain, and it's the worst system ever. And why would you ever want to have it? Those two extremes are really bad explanations, and they're and that oversimplicity is not helping anybody. So, um, right. So let me tell you what the tweet said. Since uh, I mean, it's in show before notes. Before you do that, before okay. you do that, I I I would like to say as a as a preemptive comment to our listeners discussing well discussing any policy but particularly discussing healthcare um brings up an important distinction in my mind that I want to put on the table before we start Scott and you I welcome you to add to it or comment on it and that is there is a vast difference uh particularly when it comes to this topic between the discussion of consequences and the discusses of a principle. So the question, does a policy work, is different from, is the policy a good policy? We could save a tremendous amount of money if we took every American citizen when he or she turned 60 years old and executed them. That would give a lot of of uh, money to healthcare that would not be spent nearly as quickly. Uh, so that would be a policy that would have certain consequences that we would call positive. However, that would be a horrible policy morally and uh, in principle and in virtue discussions and ethically, no one would ever consider do- doing that. And I use an extreme example there because because someone might say this over here works doesn't mean that it is necessarily a good policy. And just because something is a bad policy doesn't mean that it never works. I, I want to draw that distinction before we get in. I think that's fair. I, I'm a little bit, uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to criticize the second part of that, that be, if a policy doesn't work, it doesn't matter. I I don't think any of us would would agree that if something doesn't work, it shouldn't matter. But the fact that it does work or the particular outcome is positive is not necessarily a complete justification. Do you see the difference? Well, yeah, I think I think if it doesn't work for anyone, that would be a different discussion from it works for you but not for me and therefore it. I'm mad yeah, about yeah. it and want it to I want to call it bad. Well, I mean the outcomes are complex, aren't they? I mean the the uh, you're always looking at one outcome and ignoring another if you're going to right. call something good or bad, uh, right. and something as complex as healthcare. So tell us about the tweet. So the tweet was that um, listed a bunch of it's 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 linked in show notes. The tweet was that there are a bunch of countries um, and there's the number of citizens who lost access to healthcare um, was zero. This includes. Denmark, Germany, Great Britain, Canada, go on and on and on and on, and it's a whole long list of whole long list of uh, first world countries where folks have not lost their health care. And then um, in the last seven weeks, the number of Americans who have lost their health care was somewhere around at the time, according to the tweet, uh, one point three million. 
the way that the uh, the statistic was derived is based upon the argument that in the United States, the primary form of healthcare. This is not true for everyone, but the primary uh, source of healthcare for most Americans is through their employer. So when you lose your employer, you're losing your access to healthcare, or at least um, the employer subsidized version of your healthcare. You don't lose access to healthcare, but you're losing. Um, a good portion of your insurance premium. In the, in yeah, the, the tweet the tweet used the term health coverage. Health coverage, Citizens yes. Citizens who lost their health coverage in the past seven weeks, and there were, I counted them, there were 20 countries where this person put zero, and the USA had 15.3 million. I also put in show notes a, um, a fact check article that, um, that does it's from USA Today that marks this, not this tweet, but tweets like it as partly false because it's a question of not just whether folks are um, covered through their employer, but also uh, it, this is a question in terms of the volume or the number of Americans who have lost uh, coverage. Um, that That's also uh differently measured depending upon which seven weeks we're going to be talking about uh, during the covid um, period so there are some there are some issues with these statistics but that is a pretty stark difference between 1.3 million and zero and I think sure. I think the argument is um in countries where uh healthcare is a is understood as a right um, that is, in some form or fashion provided by the government, something like a pandemic or a major interruption in our economy doesn't necessarily uh, pull the carpet out from underneath the, the citizens. And rampant unemployment is a problem in the United States when we think about our healthcare system. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's, the unemployment is just it's going up every day in frightening ways. Right now. Right. The estimates as we speak, this is uh, May 16th. My understanding, the estimates are now over 20 percent. That's one in five of our workforce are unemployed or not receiving gainful employment. Right. That means they're not getting access to the traditional forms of health care. And I keep qualifying that, Cole, because that's important. I think, first of all, there are a lot of people who are receiving their health care um, through their uh, through government programs, Medicaid, Medicare, there are also a number of people who decided to pony up and pay for their health coverage, um, whether through a subsidized uh, ACA or whether it's through uh, what do you call that when you Cobra can, through Cobra. Cobra, yeah, through Cobra. Yeah. Um, so there are other means of access. And I think it is a little too, again, we're using that word simplistic. It's a little too simplistic to say these people lost access to healthcare or lost their coverage. They statistically uh, have a much harder time maintaining coverage, but that is a different, that's a different measure. Yes. And, and I, I appreciate you pointing that out because language really does matter. Um, if I lost my job, I would lose my subsidized 
my employer subsidized benefit toward paying my premium, and I would then have to elect to continue paying it on my own or to go to an exchange somewhere, whether it's an ACA exchange or another one, and buy a high deductible. In my case, I would probably buy a high deductible policy. Um, and important to note is that uh, this tweet said they lost health coverage and what he means is employer-based insurance. All of the people, all the 15.3 million, if that's the right number, and you said depending on the seven weeks it matters, but all the people can still walk into a doctor's office and pay a fee-for-service or into a clinic and pay fee-for-service and receive health care. So no one is barred not, from walking not all, into Not all, yes. Not all. There are a number. No, there are a number now of physicians and medical clinics in the country who refuse uh, cash for payment services. I would like to know more about that. In your town, I can name them. I'm not going to, but I can name the places where if you do not have health care coverage, they will not see you. You you can't write a check for your health for your health care services. Well, you don't have insurance. They won't see you. I'm thinking, okay, I I was not aware of that and would like to know more later. I know, I'm thinking of the walk-in clinics, which are plentiful around the town where I live. Right, and, and of, you can uh, get health care, can't you? You can get it, is what you're I saying. I absolutely can, yes. Yeah. So the language matters, and it, it provoked Scott and me to want to talk about uh, what a response should be, um, not only to to tweets like this, but to healthcare in general. So, Scott, how should we proceed? Well, i i want to I want to leave Jesus out of this for just a little while. <laughs> okay. Just because. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he forgives me for saying that. I don't ever want to leave Jesus out of anything. Listeners, I just want y'all to know. <laughs> it's just me. Um, no, I, I I think it'd be good to talk a little bit about you know, where you and I are coming from economically, because we have different lenses on this. Um, I understand healthcare as a basic human right and would like for it to be treated differently um, than you would, but I also want it to be treated differently than I think you think I would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you've articulated this to me in the past, so please, I I invite you to take a moment and just go nuts. Yeah, it's an uh, interesting concept. Yeah, the title of this episode is Right to Living. Um, I do believe in right to life. And I believe that life uh, is um, guaranteed by our Constitution. And modern liberal cultures have understood the um, pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness um, to involve the basic fundamental right to uh, health care and access to health care, but that that health care has, um, has arguably, arguably been um, defined as life-saving measures rather than all of the many different forms of health care that might be available. And so our little joke between us is I'm not really interested in paying for a little blue pill if you need a little blue pill. I'm not interested in paying for your Accutane or tetracycline treatments. I'm not really all that interested in paying for fertility treatments. Um, uh, But I am interested in helping folks who get cancer make sure that they are able to to receive top-of-the-line treatment uh, with 
without paying for it. I, I think that folks ought to have uh, access to their insulin um, regardless of whether they can afford to pay for that insulin or not. And I don't think we should be relying merely upon charity, but I think that this is an, um, a responsibility that lies on all of our shoulders as a society because we as a society should care and act in careful ways about the, um, the life-saving needs of our neighbors. Um, there is an economic part to this, which kind of relates to my concern about education. I think that Cole should have to pay for uh, someone else's children, even though he doesn't have children when it comes to their education, because uh, the, the cost that exists for the individual family to educate their child sufficiently and the cost to the society for that child to be um, educated sufficiently are significant. Um, the costs for not doing that are significant to the society, and so we as a society need to distribute that cost. Uh, 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 and the same thing would be true with health care. So uh, I'm not interested in um, subsidizing you know, someone's little blue pill, but I am interested in um, measures and interventions and providing health care for folks uh, to ensure that if there are elements of healthcare that we, where we can preserve life. I think we should do it. Uh, and I understand that that's a conversation we have to have about what does that mean. And that becomes a kind of a, a socially constructed concept. And I understand other people might disagree with me about what life-saving means. Um, but that's where I am. If, if we as a nation started to provide insulin to people who are diabetic, uh, would that be um, both cases of, I'm thinking of type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Hmm. I, I'm trying to de- decide whether you're taking me somewhere. <laughs> no, you don't get to decide that. Because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, um, I, I wonder if, I am, if we are in it for the public good, do I get to tell my neighbor to stop drinking so much pop because it's right. costing me money? Or to wear their and motorcycle it, helmet. Right. And and, and yeah. so as I'm appealing to your sense of being a socialist, and I'm saying if we are in it for the warrants that you provide, which is we are all investing in each other's health, um... What say do I have in some of the lifestyle choices of people who are costing the society I'm invested in money? I think you're going to say none because it's none of my business. I don't. No, 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 no. No, because this is the thing. Uh, The social contract goes both ways, Cole. Mm -hmm. This is true socialism. The social contract goes in both directions. We can expect that you as the recipient of our tax dollars have certain obligations to the taxpayer who is subsidizing your health care. If you want to smoke cigarettes and you get lung cancer, I'm not saying I don't want to cover you. I'm saying we may ask you to, to pony up for a certain percentage, a significant percentage even. Uh, but that is a different conversation than if you, um, you know, if you live in a community that has significant amount of radon. Yeah, and I, I want to just, 
I want to suggest that the moment we start down that road, I think the the experiment is over. Really? Um, because yeah, because who gets to be in the room to decide that smokers have to pay a portion and how much they get to pay, how much they have to pay? Who gets to be in the room to decide that little blue pills do not relate enough to my health to be covered? How dare you say that my need for a little blue pill is not, quote unquote, enough of enough about health for me to get it? You know, I'm going to make and an absurd I'm going to make an absurd argument in response. OK. OK. Who gets to say that when I turn 18, I have to sign up for the draft and if I am drafted, have to go and give my life for a cause I don't believe in. Well, libertarians are against conscription. Well, that doesn't matter insofar as you still get conscripted whether you're against it or not. I mean, no, I'm, and jail, I'm saying that's, my, my, my I, point. Be, I'm, my, no, no, I, I'm saying that's wrong and I don't agree with it. And it's anti-constitutional and we're on the same side. Uh, well, we're not on the same side because I'm going to say that the reason you get to do that the reason that the government gets to do that is we've given we've given that power over, and so I, no, I think no. it's I think it's I think it's uh, I think you're pretending like we don't already do this. We don't already give over certain liberties or certain decisions to the people or to our representatives, and right. we may or may not like what they do with that. But that's living in a republic. We get to decide who our representatives are. Okay, I love that you came here because I think this is at the heart of both this episode and the one where I will deliver my short essay next time. We are categorically not a democracy. We are a representative republic, which is part A of what you just said, but part B cannot be ignored. That is beholden to a constitution that defines the role of government narrowly and whose only existence is to articulate just how much power the government does not have. Then why do we and have so, a draft? Because people, the same reason why we have um, employee subsidized health care, the same reason that we have hundreds and hundreds of things that are infringing upon our liberties, that the, the only reason we have them is because we haven't risen up to have a new continental congress. And that makes me sound like a wacko, and I don't mean to. But no, I it mean, doesn't make you sound like a wacko. On Maslow's hierarchy, Scott, I look every year at how much of my income of the property that I have earned goes to taxes. And I think to myself, is this worth trying to overthrow the government? And I think the government, and I'm including all parties here, the government says, how much of Cole's income can we take before he will organize people to overtake us? And it's not there yet. But we, if you want me to start saying we have the draft because we also have NPR and we have the draft because we also have uh, the Peace Corps and a hundred other things, hundreds of things, thousands of things that illegally infringe upon my liberty – then I can start listing them, and this podcast episode can go another way. But <laughs> we are beholden to, we cannot all tell our representatives, hey, we would like a law to bring back slavery. And the representatives go to the Congress and say, hey, we're, in, we're introducing a new law, and here are all the arguments, and everyone or enough people vote yes, and we bring slavery back. We can't do that. 
Because the Constitution says, guess what? You can't own people. So no matter how much we want that, it can't happen. And it's just a matter of how much we're willing to take before we elect the right people and say too much is too much or overthrow the government for another, another Continental Congress. So the argument that we're doing it anyway in other sectors does not wash with me at all. I'm, I try to do the little bit I can to articulate my objections to things and to vote the right people in for my corner without trying to overthrow the government. Okay, but your question was, how does this happen? And I'm saying it it does happen. It happens in other contexts. It's not yes, it's not an poorly. experiment that it, it's not <laughs> but it's not an experiment that fails. Oh. It no, may fail not. your test. It may fail your test of the constitution narrowly interpreted, but it's it doesn't fail the test of what we do. Okay. Another thing I would point to that shows that it's a failure is that the countries that the gentleman listed on his tweet, where he's trying to point out, look, they have state-sponsored health care, and isn't it lovely? Well, state-sponsored health care systems are bankrupting nations. Um, they are so far overdrawn that, A, they have, they have uh, uh, overhauled them such that there is a pretty thick layer of private system over them. And I'd like to talk about that as an example in one second. And uh, they have brought back capitalistic mechanisms in their society because they were, they, it was not working. So many people know that I've lived in England for several months at a time for accumulation of maybe three years of my life in my adult life. And I have been, um, I have had plenty of access to be a part of um, firsthand and to study the NHS. Now, not an academic study, but I mean, I have lived in Britain and seen the national health system. Right. Uh, I've, I've had students go there. I've read lots and lots in the newspapers about it who comment on its financial stability and so forth. And one thing that is not argued um is that the average wait time for a gallbladder surgery is 10 months. Now, not one that is about to explode and kill you, but in general, if you've got a hot gallbladder that needs to come out, your average wait is 10 months. And what has happened because of... That's, that's one example I happen to know about. I don't have the list of, of other maladies. But what's, what's, what that has caused is there's a pretty rich layer in every... Um, town of, of size that has doctor's offices where you pay cash for service and go in that day or the next day and you don't access the NHS and you get your health needs taken care of, examinations, prescriptions, etc. by a licensed physician and you never deal with the NHS. And I understand in Germany as well, there's a public, uh, public option for certain for certain things, and then there is a private layer on top of that. And I've heard some uh, libertarians say, you know, maybe that's the way forward, is to have this public, it's slower, it's not as comprehensive, um, but it's there, and then you have private on top of that. I say all that to say, your argument that, well, it is working places, is one that I, it's quite contentious to me, whether it is working to have state-sponsored government by itself. State-sponsored healthcare. I meant to say by itself. Yeah, I, your thoughts. Uh, 
I don't know if it's working elsewhere. I think the what's going on in the UK right now with the uh, kind of the efforts to pare that back is a natural part of the challenge of working out what it means to understand healthcare as a right. Um, I, I don't think that there's a quick, easy answer, and I think that the answer is done constructivistly. I don't think it's done top-down. So if you're, if, if you're asking me, is it possible that there should be some private option I have no problem with private option. I have no problem with private education, for example. If you pay your if you pay your property taxes so that the schools are run and the schools are funded and then you want to pay you know an extra $30,000 a year to send your kids to a private um elementary school, I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. That's your money, you decide how it's spent. I think that's the libertarian side of my socialist libertarianism. It's your money. You decide how it's spent. If you want to spend it that way, it's not like we all have a claim on it. Um, we do have a claim on ensuring that there is a public, a viable, useful public education system available, regardless of whether you can uh, shell out any cash or not, that your child gets educated, period. So we do that in education. We offer the option to, if you if you're a person of means, to go ahead and send your kids to a private school. The rest of us kind of appreciate that because you're still paying your taxes, a and b. That offers us uh, an op- an option to kind of maybe offer a little bit more to the students who can't um, uh, afford to to go to a private school. So it takes off some of the demand on resources. Um, I mean, there's even an argument that that's the appropriate decision to make to, you know, to uh, pay your taxes and then, if possible, you know, uh, take off some of the load on the resources. That's not a demand. I'm just saying it's it's a benefit. Uh, well, the same thing could happen in terms of healthcare. Um, that uh, we understand that taking care of people who have uh, heart disease, taking care of people who have cancer, taking care of people who um, who experience uh, life-threatening um, health issues, that we just do that. We could just do that. And then if you want a little blue pill, then if you want a Cadillac plan or you want to be able to get your gallbladder surgery within six hours notice instead of uh, whatever the, the time lag you, you were referencing – um, okay, that that's a that is a viable conversation. In fact, I wonder if that isn't actually to society's benefit. That if you can afford to receive health care that does not tax the system, and you pay your taxes, why not? It probably helps everybody. I don't have any problem with that. I don't know why people think I would. Well, no, I, I think you have absolutely no problem with a person paying taxes and then paying on top of that to send his or her child to a system, a private system, because the public system is so terrible and rancid and doesn't work. And all it really requires is attendance, because uh, 
people who send their kids to private education usually do that's so not what I can... that's not what I mean. And I went to a public school and I didn't just attend. So it, it's not it's not just that. I mean, you did too. And so we don't we don't just have the the least common denominator. It exists. It needs to be repaired. But that's not the argument. It doesn't mean that we're going to have terrible health care. It means that you may have to wait for elective surgery longer than you have to because somebody else has a, a need that needs to be addressed right now. Well, to your first point, the reason that you and I got something out of public school was because you and I came from families that valued education. And families that value education are typically going to have kids who get something out of whatever school they go to. But I know enough public school teachers, to, and you do too. You know lots of public school teachers, and I know enough of them who tell me what goes on in the classroom to know that I that it is what I would cons- uh, what I would call a colossal failure. I think we are failing as a public school system, except for the kids whose families value education, and that is coincidental. It is not causal from the public school system. And I reference the myriad teachers' unions who won't fire teachers who are terrible as part of the evidence of that that is quickly available. Uh, and so all a school really guarantees about for anything is attendance. It provides education for some of the kids whose families value it. But if your argument is, we are thrilled for you to pay taxes and go somewhere else, I, I know that you're thrilled for that. <laughs> I, I don't doubt for one second that liberals are thrilled for people who have earned money in the market to pay taxes and not use what, they pay, what they're paying for. Nothing is more clear to me than that. And, but I'm saying, and by the way, this is the utilitarian side of it, and I think you're arguing that it would work, and we could talk about that whether it would work or not for a long time. I right, think I right, have that's enough evidence. Yeah. I think we have enough. I have enough evidence from other countries to show how it is not working. To for me to feel good saying from a utilitarian standpoint, it doesn't work. Neither However, does what we're currently doing. I want you to make the case, which you've made before, that you think it is principled, and as a Christian in the public square, you believe that it's, it is appropriate to argue that we take property from people who own it away from them in order to support a healthcare system. Are, are, you, are you saying you want me to articulate that Jesus demands it? Because I won't. No. No, no, I'm moving to the away from utilitarian over to virtue and principle. Well, do you think it's right to have a state sponsored health care, whether it works well or not? Is what I'm yes. asking you. And I think you do. And that's what I'm asking you to articulate. Yes, I do. And I think I do. I think we have to make it work. So I, whether it works or not <laughs> is a, is that's a, again, the ontologies matter. I think it's silly to have a mere virtue argument or mere virtue ethic. I think it's silly to have a mere deontological ethic. If I just drive the speed limit because it's the law, but my wife is bleeding out in the passenger side of the car, it's silly for me to drive the speed limit solely based upon a deontological ethic. I I need to take into consideration other factors. And so anybody who lives in a purely deontological uh, ethical construct to me is – 
is short-sighted. Anybody who lives in a virtue one is definitely short-sighted. And I've made it pretty clear in the past that I think anybody who lives on the ontological side is a Nazi. But having having a, uh, an interaction between those, I think, is where we ultimately usually end up making good decisions is by thinking about the principles, the virtues, and the outcomes. So I don't want to say I don't care about the outcomes. I do. I think that we can work them out. But yes, I think, I think from a virtue standpoint, um, living is important, not just whether life exists, but that it is provided that, that, that we, that we use the levers and the contexts that we have available. Um, to preserve living, I think is imperative. I, I, I will tell you that I visited cultures where living is not a value. It's not understood as a virtue. And I don't want to live there. I don't want to live in a place where uh, life is expendable. Um, I want life to be preserved and and your life matters to me. You're not just my life. This is about my neighbor. Your life matters to me. And your living matters to me. And I want to ensure that your living continues. And I want to do what it takes to ensure that that happens. Yeah, it's a it's a fundamental virtue for me. Does that answer well, your then, question? Well, I'm wondering then, why don't you just merely form a nonprofit organization and then solicit donations? Not a nonprofit, because that sounds, I'm not saying a tax shelter. Why don't you form, uh, why don't you donate to Doctors Without Borders? Or why don't you uh, set up a community hospital uh, that's run completely by private funds? Why take the power of the state to say, because we feel strongly about human life, we are going to require it to be funded from everyone or else you will go to jail. Because I am a heavy hand. Because I'm a citizen who has a voice in how our, uh, how our society is structured. And I get that you don't believe I have that right because we have a constitution. I think the constitution gives us that right. So it's a different reading of the constitution, but I still think it's constitutional for me to believe for me to advocate for in the public square. This is not me as a, as a Christian, but this is me as a citizen. I have the right Mm -hmm. in the public square to advocate for a policy direction and to vote for people who claim to, uh, uh, to support that. I have a, if you want to talk about the difference between what people claim to support and what they actually support, I'll join you and yell right alongside you here in a minute. But anyway, but, but if you're, if, if, if you're going to tell me I don't get to do that because we have a constitution, then you and I are going to be, uh, arguing uh, in different directions, because I I don't think the Constitution does that. I think that's an interpretation of the Constitution, which we've had, which we've done before. So I think I, I have the right as a citizen to demand that you pay uh, a portion of your of your income to the state for the sake of some guy you never met uh, to get life saving health care. I believe that that you that you don't means that you and I have to engage in the public square. And persuade our neighbors to vote for the person who um, is going to enact our point of view and 
if if I if I win, you lose, and if you win, I lose. Okay, and I can hear that you're saying we are coming to a different definition of the bare minimum that the Constitution uh, says that we have a right to. Yeah. That the words right to life to you mean this extra state expansion, and to me they do not. And Right? Sure, sure, yeah. Okay. and yeah, so I, I think in a nutshell, yeah. Okay, and what I want to say, and this is a, this is... I think indicative of human nature and of uh, a utilitarian argument, how quickly that expanded, not just now, but in, in our lifetime, how quickly, well, that also means to educate children. And it also means that citizens deserve good art and that citizens deserve these things to be healthy and happy. And the list goes on and on. How quickly something that you articulate narrowly via the same warrant, becomes unmanageable government overreach? Um, Well, even though unmanageable government overreach is an interpretation, I would agree with you that we have done a very bad job of figuring out how to mitigate this. And I think polarization exacerbates the problem rather than solving it. So I... Listen, you're not going to get an argument from me about whether Piss Christ needs to be uh, really reevaluated here, or not just that, but that maybe there are other, uh, uh, you know, maybe really doubly consider whether NEA is something that. Wait, is that the National Endowment of the Arts? Is the NEA? Yes, yes. Yeah, whether whether that's something that needs to be uh, funded uh, by Cole's tax dollars. I'm not making the argument that it should be. I'm making the argument that. Healthcare and narrowly defined healthcare that Scott's defining for himself, but I get to do that here. I'm defining for myself what I want, but I would like to persuade my neighbor to think about it. Well, I think the people on my side would be a lot quicker to listen to the people on your side if the people on your side were also doing everything you could to dismantle the NEA and the NEH. And there are no people on my side. There are no people on my side. I am all alone. I am convinced I am all alone. I said this to you in a text message or something the other day. I am alone and I feel alone. And here's why. I don't think people are making these decisions based upon, I don't think liberals are making this these decisions based upon any set of fundamental virtues. I think these are in large part prefabricated fashion statements. Hmm. That healthcare is a right becomes a prefabricated fashion statement. Mm-hmm. And your arguments that in the, in the past that this is virtue signaling, I can't, I, I cannot get away from those. I can't shirk them. I can't, they, they strike me every time because every time you're right, it's virtue signaling. And it is, it is lovely to be um, a person who um, <laughs> drives a Prius and argues for, Healthcare for everybody, and I don't drive a Prius, by the way, but argues for healthcare for everybody and free uh, college education. It's lovely to be the person who lives in this uh, bubble of of liberal ideals. They're all they can be very prefabricated and very fashionable, and that's not what I'm interested in. 
So I don't know of anybody who's on my side. I know a few people, but I don't know very many who are on my side who are willing to say, oh, you're going to receive uh, health care from, uh, from the state. Here are the obligations that you are going to be meeting as a part of that if, if you want to receive that help. I've said to you, I don't know about on the podcast, but I said to you in private, if you receive, if, if you go on the dole, I'm very comfortable in walking up to your door or having our representatives or somebody from our from our uh, uh, welfare office walking up to your door and handing you a broom and saying this this uh, sidewalk over here needs to be sweeped. Thank you very much. We'll be expecting you to do that now. Mm-hmm. So socialism is it gets characterized in ways that assume that the only direction is from the government to those with their hands out, and that is not what I stand for. I know that's how it's characterized, but that is no more accurate than capitalism is some short guy with a monocle and a top hat. What then, what prevents you from saying to me, if you are really a Christian, you would want to help sick people? Yes. Yeah, that is a non, that is a non-starter. I, if you don't, if you don't believe that, we can't, we can't really go any further because this is what Jesus tells us we have to do. Mm-hmm. We have to take care of the sick. We have to take care of the poor. God demands that we take care of the widow and the orphan. We are, we are obligated to those things. That does not mean that the only mechanism for doing that is by paying uh, money to the state. And in fact, I would suggest to you that paying money to the state is not really satisfying that requirement anyway. Um, so um, are you hearing this noise back behind me? I'm so aggravated, Cole. No, this I'm tractor not. in the background. Not a bit. Okay, this I li- I'm living on a farm, so they're yeah they're doing farm stuff. Anyway, um, that's I'm not interested in arguing that because I believe that if you want to uh, to take care of the poor, there are different mechanisms and probably better mechanisms to do that than relying on the state. That's a different conversation. I will say that. My neighbors who make the argument that we should uh, we should make abortion illegal because it makes God cry, which I believe it does, by the way. I'm not trying to be snarky. I'm saying, but but the argument that we should do away with abortion because life is precious to God, you're in my house now. If you're going to make that argument, you're in my house now, and now you're going to have to take care of, you're going to also have laws <laughs> that preserve life uh, uh, beyond just uh, beyond just reversing uh, Roe v. Wade. I, I'm, just, I'm just pointing out that preserving life, if that really is a fundamental virtue that is expressed within the public law, or within God's, God's law, or within natural law, we're going to have to have a conversation then about... Um, uh, whether, whether your definition of God's will also includes uh, taking care of health care. That's why it's important to not use theocratic warrants when you talk about laws of the state, I think, right? At, and that's at what least you're not saying me. we should. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. at least with me, because, th- yeah, you're going to get, there are, two, there are two horns to that bull. Right. I wonder if I can then use one more argument and try to get you around to my side, which is my goal. Listeners, my whole goal is to get Scott to come to my side before we die. <laughs> and that you've is got, just... You, you, you've got, uh, looks like four and a half minutes. So... <laughs> well, 
when you look at prices that have come down on items over the decades and prices that have gone up on items over the decades, it's pretty clear that one of the biggest drivers of cost of price point inflation is government subsidy. So the cost of higher ed and the cost of medical care has been skyrocketing while the cost of consumer goods has, has been the cost of consumer goods has been going down. So a moment ago we talked about the NHS um, and the NHS is one of the most highly developed state healthcare um, agencies and it's it has it has been having trouble financially since it opened its doors since it became a government entity. And I, I just think there's an economic argument to say it is non-sustainable to have the state take care of health care issues. Um, it is either going to cost the state more than it can, can to sustain itself, or it's going to ration health care or ration time of health care, ration the length of time it takes, it, it, it has to do one of those things. I mean, you can't have everyone in the nation going to the doctor every day. It's got to ration somehow. So it's got to, it is subject to those economic forces. So I don't think it's sustainable. So if my goal is your continued health and your children's continued health and your grandchildren's continued health, it seems to me that I should be looking for a different way. And people who point at our healthcare system in the United States and say, look at how it's not working, we're not looking at market forces. We are looking at corrupted market forces, mostly interference by the government and subsidies through uh, employer sponsored healthcare. So I wonder if I can possibly persuade you that long term we need to get the state out of it. Um, no. You might be able to persuade me that. Thank you for listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. I listen. No, but I, you might be able to persuade me that, uh, we're going to have to go one of two directions, which is either fully privatized or fully government. That there's not really a middle ground. I think the problem with our healthcare system, and this is, oh boy, you know, to characterize things, it's just silly. But one of the problems, I guess I should say, with our healthcare system is that there is a, a third party involved in this, not just the employer, but the employers in the, the insurance that people pay. And so there is a whole other rub to this. And in fact, mm-hmm. my biggest criticism about the ACA is, from my point of view, all it did was have the consequence of building up insurance companies. Correct. That was one of the main uh, problems, yes. Right. What it did was made uh, insurance people richer than they were before. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know me, I'm not interested in that. I, that's not what I'm in it for. So it's a half measure. And I think half measures are a great way to get uh, <laughs> half behind results. You know what I'm saying? It's... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's uh, so I it's quite possible that you might have an argument from you might get me if you could get into this seam that says, Scott, um, if we if the choice were 
totally, absolutely, uh, completely privatized. No employer, uh, con- contra- no employer contributions to healthcare. No expectation that that's how it's happening. But that Scott, when he goes to the doctor, puts down a dollar bill uh, for a shot, and if the um, if the healthcare system can't uh, can't provide that, then the healthcare system suffers the consequences and shrinks. Maybe you're going to have to prove to me that um, that it's okay for my neighbor not to be able to get healthcare because my neighbor has run out of funds. And it's not okay for you to tell me, well, they should have, in retrospect, done something different with their money. Uh, you're going to have to tell me, I have cancer today or a kid has cancer today. What are we doing tomorrow? Not what what should we have done yesterday? Mm-hmm. So there are still some big problems I have with the idea of totally privatized. But I think where you're getting at that I'm interested in listening, and this is why I like talking to you about it, is I think that the conversation about whether um, governments are actually subsidizing a market is a conversation that really has to be listened to. Uh, if with if that's what we're doing is subsidizing a market, um, there are some there's some big problems. And in you're mentioning higher education, I actually am very unhappy with the ways in which uh, the government subsidizes higher education, uh, and I think that the government inappropriately feeds a, an inflated market. You say the money you earn, you're an English teacher, you don't earn that much, you're not worth that much. Right. That's a joke. <laughs> right? It's true. Uh, yes. In the market, in the free market, you, you're going to have to have a different job. Um, no, but the, 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 uh, if, if you want to say that government subsidizing capitalism is a problem, it's really hard for me to argue against that because I think you're absolutely right. Ontologically virtue-driven any form, I think it's – I think I'm going to have to agree that you're right. What we're currently doing is not working for anybody. Is that what you wanted to hear? What we're what we're doing, I mean, on that thread, with that we started with that that man's tweet. And there were people on that thread who who came at me saying, "Yeah, and what are you doing now that's working?" Right. That's what I thought. Right. And I and I thought, yeah, "Well, what I'm I doing saw that too. Is I'm paying my insurance premium, and I am having enough money in my HSA to take care of deductibles, and I'm going to the doctor when I need to go. And I, I don't say that flippantly. I say that's that is what I'm doing to take care of my needs. And so it it works. You know, I think it was what when when the ACA was in session, there were people coming out with polls saying. 75% of Americans are happy with their health care plan. So I think a lot of people think it's working just fine. Um, and the people who, I think you would say, yeah, but there are a lot of people who don't have the debilitating illnesses that bankrupt them. Well, I think that's true on the state side, too. The, there are plenty of people in countries where, with state-sponsored medicine um, who are not having to wait the months being uncomfortable and ill until they get to see a doctor because what they have is not about to kill them, but it's still extremely uh, distressing physically, you know? And so I, I, I don't know, Scott, I, 
I think it is working for some people, and I'm not ready to say that the private way forward is not the way forward. And, and you said pri- you would be okay with strictly private. No, I didn't say I would be. Okay. I said that's a conversation I think we can oh, have. Okay. Right? All because right. I, I can see, I think that's, if you ever had an option to persuade me, your only option would be to persuade me on fully private. The, you know as, what? as soon as you say the word insurance company, we're all the, we're all of a sudden back to something else. Okay, then I want to say two things in closing. One is concierge medicine, something that has become very much more popular in the past five years, I would say, where doctors are saying, you know what? I'm done with insurance. I'm going to work in this town. These are my rates. If you want to submit something to insurance, that's on you. I want to say that from what I understand, those are becoming pretty successful And also, I've read a lot of research on the hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which only takes cash. It only pays its practitioners per procedure, and it has people coming to it from all around the nation because of its low prices when you get insurance out of it. Have you, you've seen the research on this hospital, haven't you? Yeah. Um. Uh I want to I want to be very careful now because I'm about to talk about people you and I know. Okay. Um but uh, but I actually think this this happens at doctors offices now. If you go in for a blood test, let's say if you go into the doctor and the doctor says you need a blood test, how do you know whether you need a blood test or not? Do you know if you need a blood test to receive this medication? Do you really need a full panel? And do you know how much that full panel costs? Because it turns out a full panel costs right now somewhere around $27,000. That's why I ask. What you need, I'm not, as a consumer, I don't have a medical degree. And when the doctor tells me, I need you to do this so I can give you your medicine, I do, I have a PhD and I do not have the faculty with which to say, do you really need all of that? And they say, yeah, sorry, either that or I can't give you your medicine. The market doesn't the, – the, in order to have a purely free market, I have to be able to be fully con- informed as a consumer or else there has to be some guarantee that I'm not being fleeced because I don't know if I'm being fleeced. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's an experience good. This is true with education too, by the way. Yeah. This is the problem with for-profit education has been that they've made promises to people who did not have the faculty to weigh those promises. They did not have the, that. That's why they needed an education. And so uh, they enter into a market that their perception of the good, their perception of the benefit is only experienced in retrospect, not in the moment. Um, and experience goods are hard to measure and they, they require faculty of the, of the consumer that it's fine if you as a PhD want to say, I have some of that faculty, great. I'm not sure that, we, that, that uh, the public is interested in reading medical journals every night. I am going to argue that the market solves and I don't want people to think I'm automatically gainsaying everything you have, everything you say. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's, that's why... Airbnb has ratings. That's why doctors have ratings that I can look up easily and say, this doctor won't give you medicine unless you take an expensive blood test. Well, you know what? That doctor's not going to make it long term. Neither did the for-profit universities. You can't treat people poorly in 2020 and not and, and make it in the marketplace. So I, I that's, would argue... That's compelling. 
That is compelling. Okay. You're right that I don't have uh, the medical knowledge, but I do have the ability to look up reputations and to ask questions of my doctor. And in that way, I think informed consumerism is still the way forward. I, uh, one of the things that you, you, you bring this up a lot, and I think it's always compelling, is this idea of it's not just merely market forces, but the peer review. This is market sentiments, market right? Market sentiment, yes. Yeah, that, um, that this process of peer review is something we have not given sufficient room for. And uh, even when we were talking with Cheryl, you know, you brought this up that, that for example, when people, are, when people see a stupid thing on the uh, – if I post something <laughs> stupid, that, you know, m- maybe it's true that there's a, uh, somebody stupid enough to believe it, but there are probably a lot of people who look at that and go, eh, self, he doesn't really know what he's talking about, Right. That my cousin Greg, who is a conspiracy theorist, that every time he puts something up doesn't mean everybody's persuaded by it. Probably 99.99% of us look at Greg's uh, Facebook feed and say, what a wh- what a wacko. Yeah.